0: If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to look with me in the book of Numbers. So this morning, we're actually going to cover a chunk of numbers. So we're going to be talking about chapters 10 through 14. And I'm going to read selections from chapter 11, 12, 13, and 14. And so if you got the church-wide email, you should have gotten those verses laid out for you. Actually, you didn't. I I stand corrected. And that was my fault. I didn't get the verses out until yesterday. So you'll have to follow along the screens um, if you don't have your paper Bibles in front of you or your ones on your phone. So, before I read that, just want to remind you very briefly that we're taking a year long study to look at the Bible together, the whole Bible, we're looking at the Bible as one story. And you might remember that this is God's story and that there are four parts to the story. Can you say them with me, the four parts? Creation, rebellion, redemption, restoration. Those are the four parts of the story. You won't understand the Bible unless you understand those four parts. Most of us grew up with a two-part story. But we need all four to understand the Word of God. And in conjunction with that, we have five statements. So if the four parts are the framework or the bones, then these five statements that I'm about to tell you are the ligaments and the tendons and the muscles. So listen to these five statements. If you understand the four parts and you get these five statements, you'll really understand what Christianity is. So here's statement number one. God has always had a people. He's always been building His church. Genesis 1, Revelation 22, always had a people. Church didn't start in Acts. God has always had a people. He's always been building His church. Two, evil is real, but it never gets the last word. Evil is real, but never gets the last word. Three, grace. God initiates, God pursues, God saves. Genesis to Revelation. Four, He did it. Jesus actually accomplished something through his life and death and resurrection. His life, death, and resurrection didn't make salvation possible. He is a literal Savior who literally died for his people, who literally saves those who are his. And five, everything is moving toward Jesus. Everything in your life, everything in the world, everything in the Scripture— Everything is moving toward Jesus. So, listen to this as I read excerpts from Numbers 11 through 14. Verse 1 of chapter 11. By the way, here's a preamble. I'm going to make these little comments in between these chapters so you can follow along. Uh, Before chapter 11, remember that God's people had uh, recently been given the Ten Commandments. They had uh, celebrated the Passover, and uh, God was giving them manna on a daily basis. Chapter 11, 1 says... And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Verse 4 through 6 Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat! We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Chapter 12, as God's people moved toward the promised land, they were struggling, there was uh, struggles going on within the leadership. Here's how chapter 12 opens up. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. Chapter 13. As God's people near the promised land, listen to this, chapter 13, verse 1 and 2. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. Verse 17, Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, go up into the Negev and go up into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds and whether the land is rich or poor and whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. Verse 25. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. Then as we go into chapter 14, um, there was a meeting where the people had a report. And then they had to decide what to do. Listen to this. Chapter 14, verse 2. Now I'm going to read verse 30 for you. This is God's perspective. Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would give, that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. Then we read verse 44 and 45. God's people double down. But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them, even to Hormah. I know that's a lot of reading in those chapters. Hopefully you gathered something of the storyline here. But don't worry, because we're going to pray. And we're going to ask God to help us understand this. Sound good? So let me pray for us, and if you would, pray with me, because God changes us when we pray. Let's pray. Lord, we need your word. Most of us, perhaps, are not familiar with all the ins and outs of this section, even though it's a really important section of Scripture. So we ask, Lord, that you would um, take the truth and help us see it, help us know it, help us feel it. Help us to experience, Lord, what is real, and that is that your truth stands. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would work into us as we're understanding this truth, that you might be exposing things in our minds and exposing things in our hearts, and all along the way that you might be bringing us to Jesus. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that you would remind us of your love for us, your care for us, your provision for us, that this week as we live our lives, we might be saying with our whole life, yes to you, every day. And then we might desire that you, Jesus, are magnified in our lives more and more. There's more of you and less of us. Pray this for your glory. Amen. What I'd like to show you from the text this morning is this. This is going to be longer than normal, so hang in there. Not the sermon. I just mean the, the point. Whew. I just realized that was a mistake. <laughs> um, This is what I want to show you from this text. Our relationship with God is not primarily characterized by efficiency and preferences, meaning preferences about how we think our life should go. Our relationship with God is not primarily characterized by efficiency and preferences, but fulfillment. Our life with God, our relationship with God is not primarily characterized by efficiency or preferences, meaning how we think our life should go, but fulfillment. To try to make that even more pointedly clear, our relationship with God is not based on our terms. Our relationship with God is not characterized by our terms at all. So here's where we're going this morning. We're going to look at the story, and I'm going to retell you the story, and then we're going to go to takeaways, and I have two takeaways for you. Got it? So our relationship with God is not primarily characterized by efficiency or or preferences, but fulfillment. So let's get into the story. So this is the section of Scripture where God's people actually begin to move. They have been at Mount Sinai since, since Exodus 19. Really, literally. So from Exodus 19 through the end of the book of Exodus, all the way through Leviticus, which we talked about last week, and all the way through chapter 9 of Numbers, God's people have been in one spot for a year at Mount Sinai. And in chapter 10, if you go back and read that chapter, what you will find is that the tabernacle is in the center of the land where God's people are. He's in the center of their existence, and all the tribes are built around the tabernacle. And the presence of God, symbolized by the glory of cloud, moves. It shows up of the tabernacle and then begins to move. And so God's people know, oh, God's on the move. And so it's time for us to follow. So, Numbers chapter 10, God starts to move and his people start to follow. They start to leave Mount Sinai, where they've been for one year, and they start to make their journey toward the promised land. And as they're making their journey toward the promised land, God is providing for them every day with this food called manna. And chapter 11 begins, and what happens in verse 1 of chapter 11? The people start complaining. Read that? Did you catch that? God is providing for them on a daily basis, and here they are complaining. They're frustrated because they're tired of looking at the manna. If you look in verse 6, the phrase that's there that says something along the lines of their strength is, lo- is, t- is uh, dried up, literally it's their soul feels dried up. Like, God, ugh, we're so tired of seeing all this manna. We got nothing else to look at except this food that you're providing day and night. Our souls are drying up. And we're sick of this. Can you just give us some meat to eat? We want meat. We're tired of this manna. By the way, scholars would tell us that the manna tastes like cake dipped in honey. And here they are, we're sick of it. We want meat. And so by the end of the chapter, God not only provides elders and leadership for Moses, but God ends up providing quail. Around verse 31 of chapter 11, you find out that God provides quail and even gives you the land that the quail covered and how high they were stacked up. So God was like, you want meat? Bam, here you go. Get as much as you want. And that leads to chapter 12. And what happens in chapter 12 right at the beginning? God's people are complaining. Except this time, it is Miriam and it is Aaron. Do you know who those two people are? Well, let me give you a hint. They're complaining about Moses. It's Moses' brother and sister. And they throw out there, we're upset because Moses is married to this Cushite woman. Says it twice in the verse. Did you catch that? Guess what? That isn't the real reason why they're upset. That is a complete sham. What's really true is what's said next. Has God only used Moses to prophesy through him? He's used us too. In other words, Miriam and Aaron are upset because they want more power and more control. And they want to throw Moses under the bus. They want to get rid of him. They want to to tell everyone else, don't you know that God hasn't just used Moses? He's used other people too, like me, like my brother, like my sister. And then God goes on to say, well, let me tell you something. Um, I have spoken to a lot of people in a lot of various ways in verse 4 and following. But with Moses, I've spoken to him face to face. That's why it highlights for us in verse three that there was no one who was as humble as Moses. And even his own family are upset with him. Well, at this point, we're gonna pause because I need you to know something really important. When you read chapters 11 and 12, God's upset. God's upset. People are complaining and God is not happy with his people. He's continuing to provide for them. He's continuing to care for them but he's not happy. He's upset. And that leads us to chapter 13 and 14. As the people are getting closer to the promised land, they get close, they get close enough to where God tells Moses, "Hey, I want you to get a representative of each of the 12 tribes and send them into the promised land. Send the spies out to do some recon." Send the spies out because they need to check on this place where I'm going to send you. Remember what God said about the promised land? It's flowing with milk and honey. That means you're going to like it. That means it's got everything that you need. That's what God says to them. So he wants to send the spies so that they can see it. And so the spies go into the land and verses 17 through 20 of chapter 13 tell you what they were instructed to look for. They were supposed to look and see if, there was a, um, if the people in the land had strong military power. Uh, they were also supposed to see if, the, if um, the economy was strong. And they were also supposed to see if the land was fertile so that they could plant crops and they could, they could build their society again. So they went with uh, instructions. And even ancient archaeologists would say that there were some structures at that time where walls in some of the areas of the land of Canaan were like two feet thick, mud brick. There were fortified walls there in some places. And God's people went into the land to spy out and see what was going on. And they did it for 40 days. And at the end of 40 days, they came back. And when they came back, there was this meeting held in which these 12 spies reported and guess what? 10 of them said, we should not go into the land. I mean, those people are ready for war. Uh, it has all kinds of abundance. It's, it's, very, it's a very fertile land, um, and their economy is really strong. We should not go. 10 out of 12, the majority, super majority, said we should not go. And two of them said, we have to go. We've gotta go. So guess what happens? The people start grumbling and complaining and say, you know what, we're so tired of Moses. We need to get rid of him and we need to get a different leader and we need to go where? Back to Egypt. Beloved, God's people and their forefathers had been in Egypt for 400 years. They'd been in Sinai for one year. And they start off on this little journey, they're about three days in, five days in, maybe a week in seven days in and they're like we want to go back is that crazy or what so we got to get rid of Moses get a new leader and go back to Egypt because we remember the days in which man they just had all kinds of garlic over there and and fish and they had all these things and it was free to eat it was great well God says okay well then you're not going into the land For every day that you spent spying, you spend one year wandering in the wilderness. So part of you aren't gonna go in the land. And the people hear that from God and they're like, oh, well, um, we're gonna go fight, we're ready. We're going into the promised land then. So they gather up a bunch of soldiers and head off into the promised land and guess what happens? They get destroyed, they get defeated. That's where chapter 14 ends. That's the story. You got it? Something in there in your mind of the story of this passage? If not, then please come see me after. I'm to, happy to talk with you more about it. That's the story of these chapters. So let's get into the so what. I got two things for you. Two takeaways. The first one is this. This whole section, this whole section reveals the heart of Rebellion. That's the first thing. And the second one is this, that this whole section reveals the heart of the gospel. So let's think about number one. This section shows us the heart of rebellion. Now, what was uh, of the four-part story, what was part two? Rebellion, yes. So in your mind, you better be connecting what I'm saying to this whole big idea in the scripture of Rebellion. At every conceivable turn in chapters 11 through 14, God's people are complaining. The heart of rebellion, first of all, comes out like this, a chronic, critical spirit. God's people are complaining at every conceivable place. They don't like Moses. They don't like the fact that Moses is humble. They don't like what they have to eat. They don't like the quail when God gives them something else. They don't like the manna that gets provided for them on a daily basis, six out of seven days. They don't like that God is with them in his presence. They don't like anything. They're complaining about everything. And this goes all the way back to the garden in Genesis 3. This is exactly what the serpent has tempted us from the beginning. He has tempted us to remember this, to shift our attitude to having an unthankful attitude in the way that we live life. God's people are profoundly unthankful. And then from there, Satan not only tempts Adam and Eve to be unthankful, he gets them to realize and to be tempted to think that God is holding out on them. As if if they just went their own way, they would be better off because God is withholding from them. And friends, that's continued ever since. And here in the book of Numbers we see it. There's a chronic, critical spirit. And what it means is not only that everything is complained against and complained about, that that God's people find fault with everything, it's that they can't even enjoy anything. It's both. They can't enjoy anything. They can't enjoy the fact that um, they were witnesses to miracles, that God brought them out of Egypt that they celebrate the Passover meal, that they witness the Day of Atonement and celebrate their sins running off into the distance. They can't enjoy the fact that God has provided quail every day, six out of seven days, miraculously. They can't find any joy at all at having a leader who is profoundly humble. By the way, contrast Moses' humility with uh, how God's people were treated in Egypt. It even highlights it all the more, doesn't it? They can't enjoy anything. And if you'll allow me to just, this is gonna sound like a sidebar, but it isn't. Just real quick, one thing. As the spies went into the land, they came to this place, um, they came to this place called Hebron. I think it's around verse 22 of chapter 13. And they came to this place called Hebron. And if you read around verse 22, it has this parenthetical statement that says, um, Hebron is uh, is seven years older than this place in Egypt. If you go back and you can read it. It's saying that Hebron is really old. It's saying that Hebron is older than the capital city of Egypt. But do you know what Hebron would mean to God's people and the spies? Hebron was the place that, that Abraham and Sarah were buried so the spies go into the land, they go to Hebron, which is perhaps the highest point in the promised land, and they're there, and this is a city that predates the capital of Egypt, and they're at the place where Abraham and Sarah were buried. Uh, the Abraham, the one that God originally made a promise you're gonna have a son when he was 90. Remember this? And then he had a son that developed into the nation. And then that nation ended up in Egypt where they went down initially and were about 70 and then they exited Egypt and right now there are about two million people. They should have fallen flat on their face and started worshiping, right? They were their fulfillment of everything that God had told Abram up to that point. They were the people, they were the nation, they were the ones who were gonna bless the earth. They were receiving the land that God had originally planned 400-plus years ago, and they were right in the spot where Abram was buried. That didn't even cause them to worship. They couldn't even rejoice in that. They didn't even notice that at, at that moment, that they were witnessing that they were the fulfillment of God's faithful promises for hundreds of years could not rejoice, could not, could not find joy. In other words, to try to put a fine point on this, if if they had to live by God's word alone, they didn't know when that was gonna happen. If they had to live on what God alone provided, that wasn't enough. If all they had was God wandering around in the wilderness, He wasn't enough. Do you see it? The heart of rebellion is first of all this chronic, critical spirit. And here's the second part of the heart of rebellion. A fix it mentality. You wanna know what the heart of rebellion is? Here it is. A chronic, critical spirit and a fix it mentality. At the end of chapter 14, when God says, okay, you're not going to go into the land, not the first generation. You're going to wander for 40 years. Did you catch what God's people did? Because I kind of emphasized it and talked about it already. They were like, we're going in. Oh, God, God, you said we're going to, uh, no, we're going right, we're going today. And they go into the land and they get crushed. Because in their mind, what they think is, I've done something wrong and the way to fix it is to do what is right. Does that ring a bell in any of your lives? Anyone in here struggle with the mentality of, oh, I know I've done something wrong, so I better do something right. That's God's people, that's us. We all function that way, we all have that disposition of thinking I've messed up, so I better fix it. And I fix it by doing the right thing. Beloved, those two things, a chronic critical spirit and a fix-it mentality, that's the heart of rebellion, because it reveals that we have a legalistic heart. It reveals that we think our relationship with God is based upon rules. It reveals that our hearts are bent toward thinking that what I do with God and for God makes sure that I get God and keep God. It reveals that we have a legalistic heart, that we approach God and think that he comes to us through rules. You might be wondering, well how in the world can I expose the legalism of my own heart? I'm glad you asked. Because we all have to do this. We all have to process and reflect and think about this. Here's how you can discover the legalism in your own heart. Here's how I discover the legalism in my own heart. Look at your fears. What are you afraid of? Because your fears are tied to what you desire. And what you desire is tied to what you think defines you. So when you go back and read these chapters, think about the fear that you see that just comes off the page in these four chapters. Here are some fears. I'm so tired of this manna. It's just boring and mundane. I'm afraid that this is just too boring for me. But leadership, I, I need to be in control of this. I don't like this leader. I, I wanna be in control. I wanna be the leader. I wanna be the one that makes all the decisions and calls all the shots. Going into the promised land? Oh, man, those people are huge. They're so much bigger than I am. There's a fear of uh, comparison. There's a fear of losing. There's a fear of thinking, uh, I can't do this. This is bigger than than me. Any of those fears resonate? Fear of control. Fear of wanting to be in the center. The fear of losing. The fear of being exposed. The fear of a boring existence because you need something exciting all the time. How about the fear that everything has to center on me? People are complaining at every conceivable place, right? Because they want everything to center on them. They want their preferences to be met all the time and in every way and immediately. You see, their desire is to maintain control and be in control and be the one that God answers to. So they want a life in which their life is easy and comfortable. They want a life in which all the challenges in their life they can overcome They want a life in which they would never lose. They want a life in which they get to pick all of their authority figures, and guess who that's going to be? Self. Well, if that is how I can see the legalism in my own heart. Well, why don't you be more specific, Dave? Um, How can I identify it? Glad you asked. Here's how you identify it. We live as if our relationship with God is not a miracle. Let me explain that. At at the essence of a legalistic heart is that we forget that our relationship with God is a miracle. So if someone were to come up to you and say, hey, are you a Christian? Are you a follower of Christ? If you answer, I'm trying, you're not living as if your relationship with God is a miracle. If someone says, are you a Christian? Oh, well, I'm trying. I, I, I know I should be a better person. I know, I know that there are lots of things that I should be doing and I, I, I need to get after that and start doing that. You don't understand the gospel. If someone were to come up to you and say, are you following Jesus? Well, I'm, I'm, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm doing the best I can. You don't understand that the gospel is a miracle. Or if you think in your mind, You know what, Jesus is really important, but when I walked the aisle, when I prayed the prayer, when I made the decision, that's what really sealed the deal. You don't understand the gospel. Beloved, our relationship with God is a miracle. It's why the Bible describes it as transference from death to life. It's why the Bible describes a relationship with God as being born from above. You didn't choose to be born. Beloved, if you believe, your belief doesn't get God's favor. It shows that you have it. Your obedience in doing what you need to do and me doing what I need to do, it doesn't get God's favor and it doesn't keep it. It shows that you have it. If you believe in Jesus, your faith does not earn God's forgiveness. Your faith shows that you already have His forgiveness. Your relationship with God, the gospel, the message of Jesus is a miracle. And all of our faith, and all of our obedience, and all of our asking for forgiveness, that all is the illustration that God has been pre-working in us. Do you understand the difference? If if someone comes to you and says, are you a Christian, you should say to yourself, I am, and it is unbelievable, because I am the last person who would ever start following Jesus. The message of Jesus is supernatural, and every part of our lives is the expression of all that God is doing inside of us. Well, that means, that means this. Not only is a takeaway that we get to see the heart of rebellion, but we get to see the heart of the gospel. Now, remember, we all want to think that our relationship with God is primarily characterized by efficiency and having our preferences met. We all want to think that our relationship with God is based on our terms. And beloved, I want you to know God wants nothing to do with that. If you have all these expectations for God and he's not meeting them, that's his grace. Our relationship with God is not so much efficiency and preferences as fulfillment. That's why. Do you know how long the trip is from Sinai to the promised land? Two weeks. Two weeks on foot. God's not concerned about efficiency, and He's not concerned about our preferences. That's why two weeks turns into 40 years. God's people still make it into the promised land, but not the ones that despise him. That's what he says in describing the people that wanted to go back in and fight and lost. God says they despised me. Oh, make no mistake about it. God is going to fulfill his word What he has set up in Genesis 1 and 2, oh, that's gonna happen. God's people are gonna make it to the promised land, but not those that despise him. And the reason why God spends so much time revealing our own legalistic hearts through our experiences is because he wants us to understand that a relationship with him is not like taking a vaccine. It's a journey, and it goes our whole life long so that we never arrive. We're always growing and understanding the legalism that is within our hearts. We're always wandering around to try to make this more plain. Beloved, we are the type of people that ignore the good and go straight toward finding fault with everything. And Jesus assumes the bad and loves us at the greatest possible expense to himself. This is showing us how great Jesus is because it's showing us how bad we are. All of God's people, all they're doing is they're just ignoring everything that's great. And they just keep being critical. And they just keep complaining. And they just keep thinking that they can fix it. And Jesus comes and he assumes that we're really messed up. And he loves us at the greatest possible expense to himself. You see, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus... The cross and the resurrection are the only thing that change us from a critical spirit, a fix-it mentality, to someone who's desiring to repent ongoingly and believe ongoingly and obey ongoingly. The cross and the resurrection are the only thing that change us from a critical spirit to the fruit of the Spirit in which we're growing in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. The cross and the resurrection are the only thing that can change us from trying to fix everything to rest and to hope that God will always fulfill His Word.